Welcome to this Nat Alliance Now COVID-19 Conversations podcast. The title of this episode is Higher Education Risk Management and the COVID-19 Pandemic. In this episode, National Alliance Academic Director Sarah Hoftick interviews Steve Holland. Steve is the Chief Risk Officer at the University of Arizona. Sarah talks to Steve about how the university is managing the complex risks associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. Enjoy. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today to share information on how the University of Arizona is coping with the COVID-19 pandemic or just even how what you've had to do and how you've made changes. So if you would share with us the size of the university, how many campuses you have, the types of facilities that you are uh, working with, and just in general, tell us something about the university. Yeah, sure. Thanks for uh, having me today. Um, the University of Arizona is one of three state public universities in Arizona. Uh, we were the first one. We were actually established in 1885, our primary campus, our main campus here in Tucson, Arizona. We also have a medical campus in downtown Phoenix, and we have a, a small commuter campus in Sierra Vista, Arizona. Um, we're also a land-grant university, which sometimes people hear that term and they're not very familiar with it. Land-grant universities were established um, under a federal law called the Morrill Act, designed to provide assistance to the agricultural industries in their states. So we have a very uh, robust agricultural program with cooperative extension offices in every county. Uh, we assist the ranching and, and farming community. Um, and when we also have a lot of teaching and research in, in agriculture. So in addition to those programs, we have programs in health sciences, uh, most of the, the traditional academic programs you'd expect in a major research university. Uh, we have um, uh, uh, programs in social sciences, humanities, fine arts, et cetera. But also in the sciences, a couple of areas there are worth pointing out because those are areas where we we feel we really excel. We have uh, major programs in optical sciences and astronomy. Um, our astronomy programs are, uh, we, we make here on campus the, the world's largest telescope mirrors. We have technology which we developed. The really exciting project we're doing right now is called the OSIRIS-REx project. Uh, we are flying a spacecraft to an asteroid called Bennu. We will retrieve a sample and bring it back to Earth. Um, it launched in 2016. It's currently orbiting that asteroid and doing test runs near the surface. And then it'll head back to Earth in March 2021. It's real Flash Gordon kind of stuff, but we're very excited about that project. Um, our campus itself, our main campus, we have uh, we had 46,000 students in the fall of 2019. About 36,000 of those were undergraduate, 10,000 graduate students, and about 7,600 of those students live on campus in residence halls. Thank you. So on the average day, pre-COVID, how many people would you have in your campuses, on your campuses, and in your facilities? Typically, fifty to sixty thousand, uh, depending on you know what time of year it is. Uh, during the most concentrated periods, we might have you know regular faculty staff here as well as students, and also have public events going on that will bring in the public. Um, we are uh, we're the largest employer in our community, uh, so we're very engaged in. Uh, activities. Well, like, for example, in the spring, one of the major events we hold every year is the Tucson Festival of Books. We get 150,000 people here in the course of a few days. It's a huge event. It's one of the second or third largest book festivals in the country. 
this year it had to be canceled because of the pandemic. It was a, a major disruption. Um, but typically on a normal day, um, about 50 to 60,000 people is typical. And where are you now? Yeah, well, we had a lot of people who stayed on campus during the pandemic because they were in critical infrastructure roles. Uh, we did not completely shut down the campus. We had uh, many people who began working remotely. Of course, our, our uh, academic programs all switched to uh, online in a very short amount of time. And that's all in the process of being uh, revisited and restructured for the fall semester. But I right now, just based on data logins, uh, people logging into our network, we have about 6,000 people on campus a day, typically. And have you made any special precautions for their safety? We have. Uh, the, the people who are on campus that, you know, the CDC has a definition for essential employees or critical infrastructure employees. And um, so we have people like law enforcement, healthcare workers, people in our facilities department, people that are are doing uh, working with uh, research samples in a laboratory with with COVID samples. Uh, we also have people engaged in uh, biological cleanup disinfection activities when we have a positive case reported. So those individuals need extra uh, PPE and, and uh, special equipment certification to do that work. Um, so we put those provisions in place very early on when this started. Did you simply send, tell students not to return from spring break? Is that how you handled the initial closures? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It was uh, it was kind of um, interesting that the the pandemic really hit overdrive while we were on spring break. So several things that happened with that. One is, you know, students received the notification that the remainder of their spring semester would be online. So as you can imagine, many, many thousands of our out-of-state students and even students in-state um, elected not to come back to campus, just to go home and finish their instruction at home. And so that that triggered a number of other actions that had to be taken. For example, moving people out of residence halls when they weren't here to move their own property. Uh, we had several thousand rooms of, of property, of mini fridges and microwaves and televisions and stereo equipment and, and and even things like clothing and personal items. And all of that had to be moved out to a warehouse um, so that those rooms could be repurposed. We also had, for those students that did elect to come back um, and stay on campus the remainder of the semester, uh, we consolidated them into a smaller number of residence halls. Um, so I think we had maybe about a thousand students who elected to stay um, after spring break. So we had to find, you know, put, we, we, there's a couple of ways you could look at that. We could have left everybody spread out across all of our residence hall facilities, but it would have been much more difficult to provide appropriate support to them. So we consolidated them into a, a smaller number of buildings, uh, which make, made it more difficult to accomplish physical distancing, but it also provided uh, better community support for that population. And what about dining halls and food service? Did those continue? Well, they they uh, they stayed open just to provide services to those students who stayed on campus. So their capacity was greatly reduced. They also very quickly put together uh, delivery options so that students could have food delivered. We already had arrangements with some of the very you know well known food delivery vendors that are out there, the online options that many people use to order from restaurants all the time. And so we had those arrangements in place before this even began. And so many of our students were accustomed to ordering food and having it delivered. In fact, an interesting project that got put on hold 
uh, just before all of this started, I was asked to evaluate the, the risk management considerations of using robots to deliver food on campus. Um, a number of campuses have already done this. And so our student union director approached me and said, you know, we're thinking about trying this out. And they look like R2-D2, these little little critters that you can put food into a, a protected container. And it, it drives across campus, goes to the curb outside the the building where it's being delivered. A person shows up and uses their their fingerprint or some other ID mechanism to say, yep, it's me. And then it opens up and there's their food. Um, interesting uh, process. Although from a pandemic standpoint, there are all kinds of issues with with you know touch contamination and other things we'll have to consider in the future. But um, in any event, we did make arrangements for food delivery uh, for our students and, and even for faculty and staff who stayed on campus uh, doing work in labs and other places where they couldn't easily get to a, a food source. Okay. Now, how difficult was it or what have you heard from the faculty in terms of transitioning to all online programs? You know, it was interesting because some of them uh, jumped right into it right away. They were very familiar with the technology. They already had coursework online. And then others, uh, it was more difficult. Uh, some faculty were not familiar with that type of uh, instruction platform, and they had to kind of climb the steep learning curve. We have uh, essentially divided our, our teaching options. And we, we, some of this happened in the spring, but it's, it's particularly applicable to our planning for the fall into four levels uh, from a training standpoint. So level one would basically be all face-to-face, -face, a traditional classroom setting, students and an instructor. Um, level two would be a hybrid situation where maybe some of the students would, would be there face-to-face, -face, but they would also have some of the course presented to them online. Um, level three is, is sort of a synchronous situation where maybe the, the coursework is presented um, in a streaming fashion where they can watch it live at the time it's being presented. And then the final method being asynchronous where it's presented online, but it's a recording and they can they watch it anytime they want. So there, there, are, um, there, there is interest in maintaining and preserving some degree of face-to-face -face contact. Some academic programs, their accreditation uh, requires that uh, for certain, uh, certain types of disciplines. So that's been an ongoing discussion uh, with our academic leadership about um, how to properly um, you know, start the, the semester with some degree of face-to-face -face interaction, but also recognizing a lot of it will be online. So it's finding that mix, the the optimum mix between online instruction versus uh, classroom instruction. So you know, faculty are are mostly a pretty resilient bunch. They're those that were not familiar with it before. They certainly are now. They've been thrown into the deep end of the pool. Um, so they've they've figured it out. Um, we also have a a very robust instructional learning group, a, a department that that's their entire purpose is to assist with the creation of online training content and with the technology issues to present it in that platform. So the, for those faculty who were not familiar with this, they had someone to, to guide them through the process to put their coursework into that, uh, into that mode. What uh, meeting software or instructional uh, programs has the university chosen for the online education or is that up to the faculty? Well, we already had an online platform called uh, D2L, which stands for Desire to Learn. Um, it's a very common uh, higher education online learning platform. Uh, we've also, for just regular meetings, we've used Zoom like everybody else. I think it's probably the most common one out there. 
Um, but for instructional capacity, we use D2L. Now we are we're in the midst of adopting a new platform for things like our safety training for our employees and all types of online instruction for our faculty and staff um, with a different company. Um, D2L has you know very good application for student use. Um, for employee use, there there's some limitations which we needed to deal with. So we've we recently awarded a a contract to another vendor, and we're in the process of putting that together right now. We hope to launch it this fall. Can you tell us something about uh, the university's role in antibody testing, or whether temperatures are being taken, or just what type of screening is involved? Well, yeah, several strategies are being implemented. Some of our researchers in our College of Medicine, shortly after the pandemic began, developed a very accurate antibody test. So an antibody test doesn't tell you whether or not you have the virus. It tells you whether you've been exposed to the virus. And it's it's quite accurate. Uh, it's you know, And it's important because some, some of the population who will have exposure and maybe even infection to the virus will be asymptomatic. Um, they may be a risk to others and not even know it because they're um, they're carrying the virus, but they don't have exhibit any symptoms. So an antibody test, which can be done pretty quickly with just a, a small finger prick, a small blood sample, um, is able to um, evaluate that. We started this with the goal of of looking, you know, providing this to um, our law enforcement, our healthcare workers, people in those higher risk um, occupations, um, and then at the state level. When they found out we were doing this, they asked us if we could expand. So we, our, our intent was to expand to do about a quarter million tests, 250,000 tests for all of the first responders and healthcare workers in the state. Um, that's, that's ongoing right now. We, we set up clinic locations in every county and every major city in the state so that we could start uh, providing that testing. The other thing I should mention, though, as far as screening is you know, temperature checks are an interesting issue. It is one of the indicators of, uh, as a symptom of possible infection. But it's not the only one, and it's not foolproof. Um, there's a significant number of people who may have other symptoms who never get a fever. Uh, so it's it's not a it's not an absolute indication that you are are sick or not sick. Although it's a it's a major indicator. But one of the things we've incorporated is a an app. We call it the Wildcat Well Check. Um, and it is a, an online tool that people can register for where they can take their own temperature in the privacy of their own home or, or at work, wherever. We, we would rather not have uh, people doing this, you know, as groups because, one, we want to keep people physically distanced. But we also recognize this could be personal medical information. So we want to keep it confidential. So an individual could take their temperature and, and check for any other symptoms. And then this app allows them to, uh, you know, very simply, they get a text message each day reminding them to log in, uh, submit their data. What's their, is their temperature less than 100.4? That's the triggering point that the CDC identifies as a, as a fever of concern. Um, and then do they have any of the other symptoms that are listed on the CDC website? If, they're, if they don't have either of those, they just they hit, click no, hit submit. And they get a notice back that says, thank you for participating. You're cleared for the workplace today. If they answer yes to any of those questions, and they're going to get a follow-up um, directing them to um, seek additional uh, medical medical care, possible testing, um, you know, they, they just need to follow up on that. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a voluntary tool, but we're widely encouraging it and, and, uh, and advertising it across our campus. Another very interesting tracing tool that's being developed is something that, that uses phone signals. 
um, Wi-Fi login signals. It's a mechanism where it's completely anonymous, but if you've enrolled in this, basically if you and I are in the same space, we're sitting next to each other, even in a restaurant, we don't even know each other, but our telephones are in proximity to each other, they can send a signal to each other saying, I was here. Um, so that if at some point e either of us becomes uh, a known positive case, that data is available to identify who might have been in close contact with us. Um, it's a it, it's an interesting question. Some people think of it as Big Brother on steroids, um, but it's also provides a very rapid opportunity for public health authorities to do the tracing necessary to know when people have had significant contacts. Um, there there's interesting tools being developed, a lot of different technology, different strategies being employed um, to try to, to do that type of tracing. Um, we're also looking at ramping up just regular testing for the virus. Um, our president has indicated his desire to do complete, offer complete testing for our entire campus population uh, when, before they return in the fall. Um, that'll take some uh, some work to put that all together. Um, again, you know, resources are an issue, but it's a it's an ongoing discussion. Thanks. So what are the plans for the fall? Have you formulated beyond the four stages? Have you formulated anything in particular? Lots of things in the works. Uh, we, we put together uh, 10 different teams of, of campus experts working on different topics. So we have groups that are looking specifically at things like classroom capacities. Uh, we've had a group talking about uh, safe workforce return, dealing with issues of face coverings and physical distancing. Um, the tracing issues that we were just talking about. Um, we've got to think about things like performance venues, you know, athletics, um, cultural musical performances, public speakers, all those things that th those gatherings, those bringing people together for a common purpose, that's part of what makes a college campus so vibrant and such an exciting place to be. And the pandemic has thrown a pretty big wet blanket on all that. So uh, they're looking very closely at what can we reasonably do you know, to still protect people, but but provide those opportunities in a limited way. So there are different teams that have been uh, looking at all of these. We are flowing the proposals and the ideas from those teams up through an incident command structure, uh, which is very similar to the, if you're familiar with how FEMA um, structures uh, incident command, it's been used in a lot of natural emergencies and and disasters and, and uh, law enforcement and emergency responders are very familiar with it. A lot of other people aren't, but it provides a structured way for information to flow and to be evaluated. And then ultimately it's routed to our, our president and his senior leadership team for, uh, for evaluation and decisions. The, the person leading our incident command structure is Dr. Richard Carmona, who's one of our medical faculty, but was also the 17th Surgeon General of the United States. So he has particular expertise in this area. He's providing great guidance. It also helps that our president is a cardiothoracic surgeon, um, so he has very good medical background. So we've got a lot of great expertise in addition to our medical faculty and our leadership and uh, hopefully making the best decisions possible. So do you have any insight into how this pandemic has impacted university revenues? You know, unfortunately, I do. <laughs> we, we, uh, we were really looking at significant revenue impacts for the, the year before the pandemic started. Uh, we had some interesting things happen with our student body. We've, you know, we made a very active decision last year to seek out more of the best of the best. We've always been very proud of the the high, high uh, competence level of our student body, the students we recruit to come here. Um, 
but there's always that desire to go go out and get those uh, the cream of the crop as well. You know, the the National Merit Scholars and the Flynn Scholars, those those students that are at the the top of their performance charts, and, and make them part of our campus community. And so we did that. And of course, oftentimes when you when you're looking for students like that, there's there's significant incentive and financial aid associated with that. And what happened is we were, our recruiting efforts went much better than anticipated. So we had a lot more honor students show up than we were expecting. And of course they were all, you know, made various promises. Well, that, that in and of itself resulted in a substantial short shortfall in tuition revenue. So we were starting our budget planning for the year to make up for that shortfall in tuition. And then the pandemic hit and that just, that, that just cut a hole in the bottom of the bucket. Everything changed after that. Um, obviously, auxiliary revenues are entities that sell something, some service um, to um, in order to generate revenue. If they're closed down and they can't generate any revenue. So things like athletics, our bookstore, our dining services. Um, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, whether or not we should be giving money back to students uh, for tuition. And there's actually been uh, some attempts at litigation around that. Every university in the country has struggled with that. But we had a significant number of employees who could not easily work at home or work remotely. Um, So people had to go into sort of a suspended layoff status, especially student employees who worked in a lot of those auxiliary settings. Um, That was a significant disruption. So we're we're looking at the possibility that, of course, the, the biggest risk for us right now is how many students come back in the fall. And there are several subsets of our student population there. That's a particular risk. We have about 3,500 international students from other parts of the world. Because embassies have been closed, they can't get visas. And so they, they may have exceptional difficulty getting here uh, physically for the fall semester. And and all the deadlines with that normally when that process starts have come and gone. So that's a that's a big concern. We have what are called micro campuses set up in about 20 countries around the world where students can still register. And we've partnered with other universities in other countries. They can get course you know delivery from especially online course delivery from our our programs here. But if they wanted to be here in person on campus, maybe they're working in a laboratory with a researcher or they they have other activities they're engaged in you know, it's going to be difficult for them to do that. So that's a big potential shortfall in tuition. We may have out-of-state students may decide to stay home closer to family because of the risk of of travel to another state. The flip side of that is that our students from Arizona who maybe have gone out of state for college may decide to stay here. So maybe we gain a few that we would have not had here otherwise. So it it all remains to be seen. There are a lot of uh, financial models being run to try to predict uh, where we might be in the coming months. We're, it's a wait and see game right now. So I have two questions for the risk manager. Did your pandemic preparedness plan envision what you've experienced, the impacts that have happened? Not the severity. Uh, we've talked a lot about this over the years. You know, pandemic preparedness plans, many large organizations have had them in place for years. And, you know, we would come together at least once a year and look at that plan and say, what needs to be updated? Is everything still current? And admittedly, I got a little tired of those meetings. It was almost like planning fatigue. It was like, you know, we're going to talk about this again. You know, if there's, there are a couple of little silver linings that have come out of this entire pandemic experience. One is that as a risk manager, you're less likely to hear in the future. Well, that's never going to happen um, because we've seen something happen that we all maybe thought was never going to happen. 
And so it's uh, it's been an interesting educational experience. So we had contemplated things like, you know, what do we do if if our semester has to be canceled? What do we do with, you know, schools are closed and employees can't, you know, arrange childcare for their kids? Um, you know, all of those ripple effects that you think about in a major pandemic. But it's, you know, until you're living through it, it's hard to really understand the severity of that. And I don't think we were adequately prepared um, really for the revenue impact that the this level of disruption created. And, you know, from an enterprise risk management standpoint, I think, you know, we had this on our list of institutional risk. Our risk inventory included the possibility of a pandemic. Um, but I really think we had some blind spots um, around the issue of, of revenue impacts and also just the, you know, the overall process for recovery, you know, putting putting things back together to restore operations. And that's where, the, you know, there's so much that's uncertain. You know, they talk about uh, the notion about, um, you know, risk management is so much about uncertainty. And, you know, we're watching every day to see what's happening with with case volumes and with uh, new recommendations that are coming out. Of course, our state, Arizona, is seeing significant new case growth, which is a great concern. Um, you know, while that's going on in the, you know, in about 60 days or so, we have thousands of students headed our headed our way. So there are a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of things we're still concerned about. But I think that some of that preparedness effort did help. Um, we had some supplies stockpiled. We had an incident command structure already defined. We had trained administrators about how that process works. So some of it, some of it was very helpful, uh, but I don't think it saw the picture as as clearly and as as uh, as largely as we see it now. How are you feeling about the future? I'm trying to be optimistic. It's, uh, I, I do think a couple of things are, are evident to me, just kind of looking across the landscape. I, I think we're going to see a paradigm shift in how people work. Um, the number of people who have, have decided they, can, they actually can work at home um, has gone up dramatically. And I don't know that that's going to change a whole lot. I think there will be not not just in higher education, but in uh, companies and businesses across the country and throughout the world. I think we're going to start to see a whole lot more people working at home than ever did before. And I think they're going to stay at home. And that's going to change the the dynamic and the fabric of how uh, we interact with each other as as professionals. It's going to change how services are provided. I mean, I think we were starting to see some of that as technology started to allow it. but uh, the the pandemic has ramped that change into overdrive, uh, and and so it's 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 just going to be a new world. I, I think even after there's a vaccine, after we can say this thing is over, whatever however you define that, we're going to see lingering effects in how we conduct our businesses in all different types of industries going forward. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Well, just that I think every organization is unique. Um, everybody is looking at their own. Uh, operations, their plans, and you know how they can uh, redefine normal uh, going forward. And it it all it takes a you know, it's like any other major issue. I mean, it takes a team effort. It takes lots of in, of input and professionals from all different disciplines to come to the table. That part I am optimistic about. I think we've seen uh, a, a great uh, opportunity for uh, people from a wide variety of backgrounds to come together and do problem solving. And I think that's happening in organizations across the country. So that's a that's a good thing. Um, it's just unfortunate that what brought us to that point, but it's a good thing that we're seeing that development. 
Steve, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and your insights and your experiences at the University of Arizona. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and, of course, best wishes for continued success. Thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for tuning in to this Nat Alliance Now COVID-19 Conversations podcast. If you still need your designation update this year, be sure to consider attending the amazing online mega program we've built this year to help you update. From cybercrime to aircraft coverage fundamentals, we have a plethora of exciting update topics that will interest you. Check them all out at scic.com forward slash distance dash learning and click on the Ruble Mega Online button. Thanks again for listening.